Welcome to another edition of the Throwing Bagels podcast. Kevin Mooney here with you alongside Jason Hamo. Hey, Jason. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? I'm great. Yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Chris, it's Chris Douglas with us as well, as always. Hey, Chris. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? I am fantastic. Thank you. Uh, we have another special guest. Uh, they're all they're all special, but uh but this one is really this is going to be great i can already i can already tell so uh he is the vice president of account services at production operations at paramount global uh board member of the oswego college foundation also an advisory board member of suny oswego school of communications media and the arts also a 2000 graduate of uh, oswego uh, major in communications, minor in theater. It's our pleasure to welcome Henri Houston. Henri, thank you so much for being with us. You are, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here with you guys. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, so you joined Paramount Global uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, what has that experience been like for you? Um, it's been pretty amazing. I have many thoughts about it because I you know, worked at HBO for 20 years I took some time off. I did some diversity, equity, inclusion work for a bit um, in the middle of the racial unrest and many issues that we had in globally. And then I re-entered media um, because I wanted it so badly. So it's cool to be in a space back in the media industry, but also um, in a space that's, I don't know, I call Paramount like the Google of the media industry just because it's so, so cool. HBO was very, very, I don't know, elite. I guess <laughs> here we are with um, a lot of really cool brands and a lot of different storytelling. So it's cool. It really runs the gamut Paramount Global. We're talking about CBS. We're talking about Paramount Plus. We're talking about uh, MTV. Like what, what else is out there under that umbrella? I mean, you have BET, you have yeah. Smithsonian Channel. I mean, it, it's everything all in one. And that's the reason why I call it the Google of the experience, just because it has traditional cable, that experience, because it was Viacom prior to being uh, Paramount, and then it was Viacom CBS, and now Paramount. So it's full circle experience, but it also holds all the traditional aspects of media, which I hope we don't lose all of it as the world turns, as I like to call it, mm -hmm. um, just because there's some rich stuff in media from back in the day. What are some of the primary responsibilities in your role? Um, that's a great question, Christos, because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I managed the, the so I, I work under the creative and strategy arm of the corporate offices. So our CEO was Bob Backish, and my boss reports to uh, Julia, who reports into Bob. So we're pretty close to the top of the business. Um, and my job is pretty much the operations arm of creative and strategy. So I have one piece that's the project managers, and the other piece of my team is the production and digital operations group. So, you know, we cover the gamut of the experience, the creative experience. So it's all a creative agency. My prior life in media, I worked in marketing, international marketing. So, you know, that was a, I don't know, type of experience that was quite glamorous in many ways, I would like to say, and it was global. I've always wanted to work on the creative side and the agency side. So this is pretty much the agency experience within a corporation. So yeah, so from project management on through to creative ops. So you mentioned before you joined Paramount, 20 years, quite a long time, 20 years at, at HBO, um, which included, you know, you were vice president overseeing marketing operations um, at a time when Game of Thrones, which is right over your, right over your shoulder, um, was, was one of the, uh, you know, most popular shows on TV 
really in existence, honestly. Um, were there different approaches to marketing that show domestically versus internationally and either and even like you know other HBO shows? Oh yeah, Jason, that's a great question and one that I delight in talking about. Um, especially when I visit Oswego, we the business courses, we definitely take a deep dive in. Um, so very interesting. When I was doing the work, I didn't realize how fantastic and fascinating it all was, right? Just kind of being in a space where I was able to partner with international broadcasters throughout the world. I mean, everywhere, every continent we sold or licensed HBO programming. Um, HBO Domestic, of course, did fantastic work. You saw all of the different campaigns that were produced domestically. And I have to say that the international markets definitely, they they put a, a bang in the experiences as well. And what I mean by that is that they really took their marketing campaigns to the max. One of my favorite campaigns was uh, London, specifically Sky UK. They had like the White Walkers walking all over London. Like it was fascinating, right? <laughs> Um, another great exhibition that happened happened in Australia, where for se- the final season, for the finale, they actually created like a graveyard and they won a award at Cannes for this. They had a graveyard of all of the characters who had died so that people could come and kind of walk around and see all the tombs. It's fabulous. Wow. Wow. And then in Australia, this last one I just had to talk about, they had like a humongous dragon, fire-breathing dragon. At the Sydney Opera House, it was it was Whoa. insane. I mean, the levels of brilliance that came out of the campaigns was remarkable. And like I said, I was in it and just kind of doing it and saying, "I'm exhausted. I can't wait to Game of Thrones is over." Um, and now, when I look back, it's it was one of the greatest things, um, definitely in my career. I'm sure it was like work to you versus you know enjoying it from the outside. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like you know, you're not seeing the full, you know, the full aspect of it, right? Like we saw it kind of thing, you know, right? Yeah. Building and what about... Sorry, no, I was just going to say, building versus exploring is always very different. And we don't get a chance to really enjoy things until we, you know, it's over. And that's why I tell people all the time, try to enjoy the journey because that's the richness lives in that. And what was the the difference, right? So the way things were, were marketed, you know, in the US for a show like Game of Thrones versus... You know, like you said, you know, with this big dragon in in Sydney, Australia, right? Like, how does it? Did it seem like from from what you're saying, it kind of seems like internationally things were bigger versus I feel like over in the U.S. when it came to you know a, a show like Game of Thrones. Okay, and let me go back to the dragon piece because I have to say Australia picked up the dragon idea from the U.S. We actually okay. one of the premieres was at Lincoln Center, and that's where we had the dragon. He he wasn't breathing fire. <laughs> here in the states, and that probably could be something with the U.S. and New York, but um, you know, Australia took it to the next level and like really took you know took it to the max. The thing that made it different, and I wouldn't say it was like versus, not a versus experience. I think it's what worked for the different territories, what they wanted to do to really elevate. Because one thing that I had, uh, I was charged with in my role is to really make the international markets push their campaigns really go above and beyond. A lot of times they pitch things to me and I was just like, that's what Game of Thrones is like the biggest show in the world. That's so weak. 
don't you think you should be doing something like big and massive? And they're like, all right, we'll go back and figure something out and then come back with some bigger ideas. And a lot of times that's what happened. And I'm telling you, they spent lots of money on their campaigns, which were highly successful and award winning globally. So I wouldn't say they were, you know, different in a sense that they were better than the U.S. Mm-hmm. I would just say that they definitely pushed the envelope for their territories and their pocketbooks. Got it. It seems like it's a matter of recognizing the cultural differences within each of those countries and then you know appealing toward you know those specific types of cultures yeah and kevin i'll lean into that a bit more too with uh territory like dubai right the middle east whole different experience like women can't be featured in the campaign no children right Mm -hmm. they have to be men and that was a a challenge in the experience where i would have to have real conversations about our clients right who are paying tons of money for the product right they spent millions of dollars licensing the programs. Um, and I'm like, you. it's very difficult when there are a lot of leading women in Game of Thrones that you don't feature them in the campaign. Mm. That's kind of disrespectful in many ways, right? To the showrunner, to the story, to the actresses. Um, so we had to come up with creative ways for them to lean into uh, promoting the shows. So something that they did was really fantastic with Game of Thrones. There's a really cool... Uh, water fountain show that happens in the middle of Dubai. And what they ended up doing was they pulled scenes from the, the show and they actually featured those scenes on the water. So it's it's kind of, you know, nothing now because it's everywhere. If you go to LaGuardia, I think, airport, they have like some fantastic kind of water show now. So, but then like, I don't know, it's like eight years ago now, that was like, it was fantastic. So that's a, you know, a, a cultural difference or influence on the campaigns that I experienced as well. That's um, quite appealing and I learned a lot as well. Does that make it more difficult for you? You know, when that, in that kind of, in that kind of environment and that kind of aspect of it where, you know, in the Middle East, right? Because they have those restrictions on who, who they can, you know, show. So in one case, Jason, it was very challenging, right? It was challenging in the sense that I had to tell clients, no, um, that's not the right angle. You need to go bigger. But then it was easy for me just because that's my personality. So if I believe in something, um, so I sometimes I'll say, you know, I was the right man for the job in a, in a sense, right? Because I not only guided the clients to build fantastic campaigns. I mean, they were building them anyway because they're creative geniuses in many ways. But the, the idea of making sure that the campaigns matched up to the quality that HBO wanted the campaigns to be, but to also master shows and to also satisfy the showrunners like Dan and David, um, but also letting them know that, or, or working with them, I would say, to create campaigns that satisfied their, their culture, the territory, the demographic, and still be very successful. Did you do any work with, um, you know, other shows like The Wire or um, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yeah, you, Jason, you know your HBO stuff. Um, <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, in those shows, I have to say, The Wire, because of when it came out, right, I worked on, the show started really, like, blowing up the campaigns with, like, I would say like Rome. I don't know if you guys saw Rome. Mm. That was beautiful, right? Um, Six Feet Under. Like that was a time it kind of really like really blew up. And then, but like Sex in the City, Sopranos, that was like really before I got into the international sales group. But we, it wasn't really that big then. Um, 
But they were those those shows were definitely a part of different campaigns that we did, but they were smaller campaigns. The bigger campaigns we did was like um, Big Little Lies and yeah. uh, Insecure. Insecure was a very interesting one because um, quite often in the industry, you'll hear this, and I challenge executives up and down, and I did when I was at HBO, about certain shows not selling, right? And there was this big challenge that Black shows wouldn't sell, you know, that would have Black leads. But The Wire did. It was insane. I was offended by that because it was only one Black story, right? There was one Black story about Baltimore, what was happening there, the drugs, the drug dealing. So that mm. was an, an excellent at all representation of Black folks. So what happened with Insecure over the time that I was at HBO and when it was on, is God bless Issa Rae being a superstar, um, Issa Rae felt that the campaigns should have been just as large and voluminous as a Game of Thrones, right? Maybe not spending all the same money because it doesn't have that same value as far as like, you know, dragons and fantasy, et cetera, but it was still story. Um, and Lucinda Martinez, who was the head of multicultural marketing at the time, she did a lot of the heavy, heavy, and her team did a lot of the heavy work with making sure that shows that was featuring women, Black folks, diverse cast, that they were promoted and marketed well here in the States. Mm -hmm. So it made it a little bit easier for me to go to international clients and say, you need to lift this show up and make sure that it's, it has dollars behind it, the marketing campaigns, and that they're big. And I have to say that they did some really cool stuff by elevating in shows that originally they would say, well, they're not really selling. So we're not going to put many dollars behind the marketing campaigns to really producing like block parties in London and in Paris that was celebrating like insecure. So the, the campaigns, I would say, and the marketing exhibitions or experiences, they really match the shows. Clearly, I can talk a lot about this stuff. I didn't realize. <laughs> I'm so well, locked in. Like, <laughs> I know this. Right. This is fa this is fascinating to me. Awesome, awesome. What other? I know Westworld, right? Was another show that oh. had a lot of big campaigns, right? I mean, Westworld was out of control. Yeah. <laughs> I love the parties for Westworld as well because, um, and the premiere parties were a big part of the job as well. Um, because it was almost a part of the campaign in many ways, although many people, you know, the select guests were actually able to enjoy the shows besides they're seeing photos um, on every outlet afterwards. But I mean, that big, like, I forgot what we called it, but the guy who was like in a circle that was a part of the opening of the show. Oh, yeah. um, it was very interesting. I forgot what you called that, but we need to know that, too, and when we were building the campaigns. But the the way that they built those in every country around the world to like promote the show was out of control. It became like a symbol that people kind of wanted to wear. So that was, you know, it was massive in that sense too. And again, a very diverse cast featured a lot of women. There were a lot of challenges when it came down to making sure that we promoted the show and not just the men or not just the characters that people liked, but we made sure that we highlighted everyone, all the cast members. One, one more question about that. Back to like the diversity aspect. Mm -hmm. um, did that kind of, you know, initiative vary on, you know, the location, for instance, right? The areas that have, have a larger, you know, um, cultural aspect, right? So like the U.S., I think I would say England, I would say, I would say France, you know, but if you go to, you know, like we talked about the Middle East earlier, right? Like it's not as large of a cultural aspect, you know, there or even, you know, you go to Spain or you go to some, you know, a lot of other countries, right? These, yeah. Those three countries I mentioned have a larger, a larger population, right? Mm -hmm. So did you kind of just push those in those specific countries or did you still try to push it in other, in other markets as well? 
I push globally across the board. I think that the thing the thing that helped me in my role too is that I'm like proud of being black. I'm proud of being queer. I'm proud of storytelling. I'm an artist as well. I'm a storyteller. I believe in creating platforms for folks to tell stories. And why I loved my job at HBO because I, I got a chance to really connect to a bunch of stories and to elevate them in different places. Every territory that we worked in and that we sold our programs to, um, I pushed to make sure that the marketing campaigns matched up to the caliber that every plat every story deserves. So you know whether that was queer characters in shows or women or black folks, Latin folks, et cetera. It was, but we need to push the envelope and make sure that you guys are promoting the whole entire experience because that's where the power lives, right? The power in the media industry, any industry that's uh, selling content in any way, the power lies in the folks who manage that platform. So if we want to educate people or want people to embrace different stories, those are the platforms that need to make it happen. So it takes people behind the scenes to push the envelope and make those things, you know, mm. make those things happen, but then also explain. So it's not like I'm just pushing the agenda to say you need to do it because I'm the VP at HBO and this is the right way to do it. I'm the be all and know all. But I want us to collaborate and understand together why it's important that just beyond marketing the show and making it pretty and gorgeous and getting it written up in Variety and, and Hollywood Reporter or whatever platform there is. Uh, publications in the different countries is that you want to be a company that's actually supporting different stories because your audiences are different. And what, if you also want to get different, uh, you want to build your demographic, right? And get those dollars in too, because it has something to do with capitalism as well in the business, because it's a business, right? But we want to get those dollars in those in-house. We want to get those eyeballs on the screen. We want to make sure that people see themselves in the stories because we're offering it to you. You pay for it. You license, We've licensed it to you. Mm. Um, so let's take it to the max on every platform, including your marketing platform. How inclusive do you find uh, companies like HBO and Paramount? How inclusive are they in front of and behind the camera? Mm, Kevin, that's a great, great question. So interestingly enough, HBO was like super diverse. And I realized this after leaving the company and working at different companies, mm. right? Paramount is super diverse. So it's great because it, it's baked into the DNA. There's BET, VH1. So you have all the demographics. HBO, when I started HBO, it was very, very white. Um, over my time there, I have to say three quarters of my time at HBO, it became very diverse. We were doing DEI at HBO before it was like a hot hip thing. Um, and in a really rich way, meaning that there were EVPs who were black and more than one or two, right? Um, my boss was a black woman from the South. So it was, I have to, it's funny stories that when I got the job with Maddie, God bless her, she passed away. She was walking me to the office to actually have the interview. And she went into the corner office and I looked at her like she was crazy. This is how like insane we're like, it's ingrained in us that certain things work out in certain ways. I'll say it like systemic racism is a real thing, how it's ingrained. So mm. she walks into the corner office and I'm looking at her like she's crazy. And she sat down in a chair at the desk and I'm like, oh, this is your office? And she's like, yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh my God. So look, I can actually be a director in a corner office one day or a VP or, you know, so those are the kind of moments of things that happen when I say diversity and equity inclusion works in a space to make sure that people see themselves in different roles. So internally it was beautiful in that way. And we all, I have to say, 
lots of great Black people and Latinx folks and beyond, women specifically. I like, when I talk about diversity, I like to make sure we encapsulate all the differences. Um, but we there were Black folks all around the company in different roles. Um, the content, the content became more diverse over the last like 10 years that I was there. And it was normal. Mm. It didn't feel like abnormal. Oh my God, we have a black show. You know, it was more like, okay, we have a slate of good programming that's diverse. Um, so yeah, that was the evolution at, at HBO. Like I said, at Paramount, it's baked into the DNA. You mentioned earlier when when you left, I think we, I think you mentioned when you left HBO, you kind of took a break and did some DEI work. Yeah. Um, what can you can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So I, you know, I teamed up with a couple of different friends who worked in tech, and we they brought me in to have conversations with leadership about um, understanding the impact of diversity and what it meant and what it means to the company, right? And I have to tell you, with some challenges, I can't really mention the companies now because I have some um, challenges with the companies right now that we're trying to clear up that I work with. But I will say this is that. It was interesting to sit across from different people, different individuals who were in leadership roles, and they didn't see a problem with the companies being all white, departments specifically being all white. And they just said, the work is getting done and that's what it's all about. And I said, yeah, that's a bigger problem that we have in the experience. What gave me a slight upper hand is that I was an executive for long, for, for years, for some years, mm -hmm. I should say at a media company and a, res a respectable media company. So that's what got me a seat uh, to just kind of have the conversation with folks for them to kind of see me out of eye. Um, but it was challenging to sit across from folks and have to help them understand why it's important to create an environment that's diverse. And one of the things that came up quite often, it was a part of my experience, was I would have to bring it home to something personal. So for example, I would look around, I remember looking around his executive office because he, I, he, I couldn't get through to him. He was just like, I mean, I don't understand why we're doing this. Like it's, it's takes too much. Right. So I looked at a picture and I saw a picture of his children and I said to him, I said, so if your son was queer, right. And he was rejected from a job because he was queer, homosexual, right. How would that make you feel? And he's, that brought it, had to think about it a bit. And he said, that, that would be awful. It'd be an awful experience. I would hate for my son to ever be rejected for anything. And I said, well, you don't understand that's what you're doing by rejecting people who are different from this environment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it took a couple of conversations. It wasn't magic, it wasn't a magic wand moment, but it was a lot of really personable conversations I've had to, I've had with um, different leaders to help them see outside the box. One big thing I realized in the whole DEI experience, which is uh, Elon Musk said some bad things about DEI just recently. He tweeted out about it needs to be, um, you know, pretty much eradicated because it's causing segregation in different ways. I'm paraphrasing, so I don't, that's, it may not be exactly what he said, but it definitely led to that. Um, the conversation of tying diversity, equity, inclusion to compensation, I think is important. I think it's the way people kind of hear it. And I don't blame folks all the time for not realizing that they're not looking outside the box because I don't always think about the lack of diversity that could inclusion in the world. I mean, that's just not what we're looking at first. Um, we're kind of thinking about getting the work done in just our own lives. But in order to make it, it needs to be more than a checkbox on the priorities at companies. It definitely needs to be tied to a conversation so people make sure they look at it first because it's 
it, it's still a big problem in a lot of industries. The fact that it's not the industries are not as diverse as they should be. Mm. So the I sit on the DI committee at my company. Fantastic. We've been struggling with this whole concept of trying to get buy-in from our leaders. Is the best way, and maybe this is kind of an awkward question, I guess, to ask it this way, is the best way to make it personable to those leaders to kind of get that buy-in so that we have the, the diversity that we're looking for? The first piece is the buy-in piece that I get stuck with, right? Because, yes, that's the language we use. So I'm not saying that that's wrong for you. I think it's the wrong language to use when we talk about making DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, a natural part of our work environment. I think that when we talk about values and the mission of the company and the principles, that it should be baked into those things. Because that way it's baked into the, the plans for each year, the goals for each year. So I think that it should be mandatory that as a part of the experience and that every SLT, senior leader, that they need to be responsible for a piece of that. Right. And that it should be reflected in the people, in the content, in the work, in the consumers. Like that should be a part of the experience from that mission principles, um, values level. And then it trickles down throughout the company. And it needs to be, you know, checkpoints throughout the year. So it's more of a strategy that's built around ensuring that there's a diverse, equity, and inclusive environment or equitable um, environment that it needs to be baked at that level. Right. Because if you you say there's a buy in to me, I hear option. So I have an option to buy in or not. So when you get folks that type of option, psychologically, that's how they lean into it. All right. We'll, we'll switch gears here. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about what you've done with the SUNY Oswego as an alum, including the establishment of the Empowered Scholar Award. Mm-hmm. How will this award help change lives of the recipients? So I'll say how I hope it does. When. The Oswego team came to me to, Jerry Jaworski came to me to put together this scholar award. I was very resistant for so many reasons. I just didn't feel like a philanthropist. I, I, it's crazy. Although my grandmother raised me that way too, raising money for the church over throughout my life. The requirements for this scholarship or scholar award is pretty intense. Like the students have to be involved with like different organizations around the campus. They have to do a presentation. They have to put together like a full PowerPoint presentation of what kind of impact they've made on the campus and what they're going to do after school, you know, when they graduate. So it's really kind of leaning and how I built it was based upon the work that I did in college. I was very involved with a lot of organizations. Um, I was a playwright and a theater director in school. And the plays and shows that I put up and skits that I wrote was really based upon bringing people together. I mean, the first show I wrote was based upon a conversation I had with a white student who said that she had never sat close to a black person before. So I said, how many other white students feel that way walking around this campus while we were all in school together? You know, it was kind of one of those moments. So I, you know, wrote that play, Spread the Blackness. And I, but then also throughout my college career, there was a lot of impact that I was making just in different ways with different organizations, unifying Mm -hmm. folks and making sure that we were connected. So this scholarship is really about highlighting, celebrating and supporting students who are making that kind of impact to bring people together to tell stories being brave um, being innovative um so that's really really what what my goal is you know in helping students who are who are really elevating um unity 
of us, of all of us. You have a website. It's called Henri. Is it Henri, Henri Jack or just Henri, Henri JAC? It, but see, Jason, I love how you play with all of it because I've heard it both ways. So it's <laughs> well, that's why I'm, I'm trying yeah. to, I'm not sure which one it is. No, you're good. You're good. So it's Henri Jacques. It should have okay. the QES, but I wanted to make sure that the Americans couldn't pronounce some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So Henri Jacques, the lifestyle and empowerment brand, HenriJacques.com. Yeah. Um, so obviously you wear many hats. You're, you have your marketing, you're a marketing executive, um, a creative consultant, a therapist and life coach. What prompted you to pursue becoming a therapist and life coach? My God, Jason, that's a great question. And no one really asked it. They're just like, hmm, interesting. So (laughs) (laughs) actually my job at HBO inspired me to go back to school to get a degree in psychology. So I got my master's from NYU in psych, right? In drama therapy. And it was a very interesting thing because a part of my job in managing folks was to, you know, managing people. You guys manage people or have, and it it takes a lot of leaning into making sure that people are good, right? Because we're not robots. I just had a conversation about mm-hmm. the fact that we're not, um, I think the companies sometimes think that we're AI already. We're already in that place and we're robots. And I'm like, guys, we're not there yet. Uh, maybe we are, but not at, at Paramount. So, um, so much of the work was leaning into making sure that people were healthy and well in order to do their best work. And I just kind of rolled the dice one day and just looked at it, looked up some programs, knew I wanted to go to NYU and saw the applied psych program and then the drama therapy track um, at, at NYU and applied and got in and, and went for that degree. And from there, that led to me becoming a licensed therapist. But then I found the life coaching piece was a piece that really moved people forward, whereas therapy kind of keeps you in the process to go really deep and go back and stay in that space, very Freudian way of doing things. Um, but it was all about moving people forward. So that's what I picked up the life coaching certificate at NYU as well, to make it a full, rich package of uh, experience to help people move forward. And how do you manage you know, your job right now at Paramount and still doing therapy Man, life coaching like that's it's a mouthful man it is man you made me grab my because <laughs> i was like how am i doing it um <laughs> it's one of those moments that when i i have to say when i was at hbo and doing all of it it was it was easier because i the systems that we had in place in my department i had built them because i had built them from ground up so i was there for 20 mm-hmm. years i was in one department for 19 of those 20 years so I was able to really build the pipeline. So my team really managed the day-to-day. So I had more time to do a lot of the things outside, the creative work and directing theater and, and having like 20 clients at a time. Um, nowadays, it's cut down pretty short. So I have like three clients within different like cycles. So I have like three-month cycles, three to six-month cycles, and I'll take like three to six clients um, per cycle with my job at, at Paramount. But I've had to cut down on the creative stuff just because it is a nice chunk of work um, altogether. But I don't have children, and I mean, that's on purpose. So th- it kind of leans into that, that I have more time to do the things that I love. Oh, inspires you. Great. I would be a, probably a great dad, but I'm just saying. Crystal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who inspires you? Oh, my God. Many folks. I mean, the person that comes to my mind right now is Oprah. Oprah is one of my like shining stars. I just like the fact that she and folks with one name for some reason, because Rihanna is another one and Mm. Beyonce is another one. It's it's interesting. And there are a few guys in there as well. But I do like folks who, you know, really follow their dreams and take it to the max. 
And I feel like Oprah, Rihanna, Beyonce, Tyler Perry is another one. Uh, Glenn O'Brien, who was, I don't know if you guys know Glenn O'Brien. He was a, a journalist with Interview Magazine for many years. Fantastic mm. guy. Um, but just folks who really take their dreams to the max. That's the folks who inspire me. So I definitely keep quotes around, definitely follow them on all the social media platforms, just to kind of see what they're jumping into and leaping into now and every day. What is the concept of trauma therapy? Okay, so that's a great question because I just had a conversation. I was on my way to a party and I don't know how the conversation came up. It was random like elevator talk where the folks on the elevator were talking about their master's degrees. So anyway, drama therapy came up. Everybody turned their heads and looked at me and was like, oh, you know, cluster your pearls. It was one of those moments. Ah. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a good thing or bad thing. But anyway, um, drama therapy is truly the marriage of theater technique with psychology. So it's like music mm. therapy, art therapy. So you're marrying the two. So it's an embodied therapeutic experience. So rather than just sitting with traditional CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, sitting on the couch and talking, you're actually not always acting out experiences, but that's what people think immediately. But you're truly embodying that. What is those? What are the, that? What does that feeling feel like? Like, show me what it is. Pull it out of your body. Pull it out of your you know mind and show us what it is. And, and let's see what it is to see if we can uh, re-narrate that story, re-narrate that feeling, or shift them and make them more healthy, mm. healthier thoughts. Um, and a lot of the work that I do specifically is about re-narrating story because a lot of people live with the trauma of maybe something bad their parents said to them or being bullied and carrying that energy of that experience, right? So we, re we need to re-narrate that. What that means is that little boy, little girl, part of you, little them, they, part of you kind of holding on to some things that maybe you don't need to and just mm. talking about it is too painful, right? Drama therapy amongst many things creates a distance between the trauma or the counter experience adversity that we experience, right? And helps us gain more control of it, of it in order to kind of move through life. So that's a cool thing. One of the cool things about drama therapy, the the studies are so advanced these days. Um, and I went to school, I graduated, you know, some years ago, but it was one of those moments where it's evolving like rapidly. I understand you've you've got a podcast in the works called The Professor and the Princess. Well, what I is that about? Oh, dude, you have it all. I didn't realize you. <laughs> this is good. So, oh my God, one of my good friends, Randy Davis, a fantastic Jewish woman. And I got to say it just like that because we celebrate the fact that she's a Jewish woman. She, um, we just start talking at work and we were having great conversations and I'm very dramatic. Another reason why I studied drama therapy. So there's a lamp on my desk and she would be sitting there and I would pull the lamp over like you guys have your mics there and we'll be talking, talking. And she has a podcast already about women over 50 and those girls get together and talk about dating and all kinds of things. You should hear what they say about guys. <laughs> oh, I can oh, imagine. I can imagine. I mean, all the things. I mean, <laughs> but anyway, um, so we were talking one day and she said, you know, Henry, have the podcast and it's great. She said, you know, we should record. We should do like, and I was like, please, let's jump into it. And it was truly about conversation. So the, 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 uh, I guess the premise of the experience, the podcast, is about flipping stereotypes on their heads. Because what we found is that we had a lot of things in common with her mm. being a woman, being Jewish, me being Black, queer, a man. So 
what we realize is that, okay, maybe we're not that different, right? We're different, but there's some some red threads and that's how we're gonna connect the world. Um, and that's really what it was born from. So we recorded about 15 episodes and they're in the edit stage now to you know see what we're gonna do, we're gonna shop them around and see if there's any kind of like pull or uh, interest. And then after that, we'll probably just continue to record and, and throw it up on the platforms at some point. That's yeah. any any timeline uh, that, that you're aware of? Yeah. So this is the thing. So we have to settle on that at the end of the year. We kind of took okay. a break going on in the world. And it was, of course, affecting Randy and her family in a lot of ways. So we just had to take a beat to breathe. Um, but we know that like it has to be launched before third quarter. We're just, excuse me, first quarter next year. Because we know if we don't do it, it'll never get done. So we're looking to get it out before probably spring. It's a good time of the year. So it's just the two, it's just the two of you. It's just the two. Of you, but do you bring do you bring on guests or is it just you guys talking about topics about current events? Like yeah. So the first fifteen episodes is about us talking about like current events and just topics in general. Like we talk about mm -hmm. everything from she interviews me about being black and queer, interview her about being a Jewish woman. Then there's like just us conversing about oh my god, I'm trying to think of some of the topics. We talk about sex. We talk about everything. Relationships. We talk about. Uh, blacks and whites coming together and what that means, which keeps us apart. We talk about death. We talk about just, mm -hmm. it's like lifestyle, the life cycle um, across the board. We talk about dating a lot because both of us were in a dating stage. She still is. <laughs> so she brings the stories into to me and we talk about them and dissect them. Um, it, it's just the full gamut of just kind of different topics that just we go through as humans. Well, I'm interested. Count yeah, me in. I, I'm yeah. so Sign I'm me absolutely up. sold. Boom, we got our first three subscribers. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your time at Oswego. Cool. I guess the first question would be, what led you to Oswego? Christmas is a great question. So there were three schools. This is how I picked my college. Children don't do this. Young people don't do this. <laughs> my family wanted me to go to North Carolina A&T because a lot of our family members went there. So... They were going back and forth about it. My grandfather was adamant that I'd go. So there were three schools that I had boiled it down to. No, it was four because it was Binghamton, Oswego, North Carolina A&T because my family wanted me to go there. And my dream school is Yale. That was the school. Mm -hmm. was, that's where I want to go. Mm -hmm. So I went in the back room and I was this weird type of kid. I went in the my bedroom and I put the schools on on piece of paper and I folded them up, each one, and I put them in a hat. My baseball cap, like Kevin's, right? Shook it up, reached in, and I pulled out a Swigo. And I'm wow. like, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. <laughs> wow. Now, I couldn't afford Yale at all. So I knew it was really, so if I pulled Yale, I'd probably like take it out and take another spin, right? <laughs> 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 um, yeah. And then a Swigo, and I, when I visited, and I had visited a Swigo already, and I fell in love, I have to tell you guys. When I came to the campus, I was like, what, this lake and this beautiful camp? I mean, even back then, we it was pretty old when we got there compared to yeah. what it is now. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was just something about it. It was small, you know, compared to the other schools. And it's something rich in the people, I have to say. Um, uh, Monaco Santos, and it was a few other people there who really made me feel like this is where I need to be. Um, and showed me all the right things. When I talked about I was in the gospel choir, they took me to see the gospel choir. When I said I was in theater, they took me to Waterman Theater. You know, so I was like, this is home where the other schools didn't. Did no? your family, was your family upset um, that you didn't, that, that you didn't pick North Carolina a, a historically black, black university? 
Um, were, were they upset about that? You know, my granddad had a moment. You know, he was a very calm dude, so he wouldn't really show the emotions. I mean, he he wanted me to go a and and he said to me, he said, this is what I want, and that's it. Like, he was a man of very few words. So when I decided to go to Oswego, it was interesting because when he drove me up to the school, he was bothered that it was so white. He just, he, we were driving to Walmart, right, to get all my goods, my Tide and Downey and all the things to settle me in and he looked around and I said isn't it a beautiful campus you know trying to get his buy-in and his approval and he was like grandson it's it's not many black people here and I'm concerned about you being here with all these white folks you know and it's six hours away it's you know we can't get to you right away so it's a lot of that so he checked in I actually had to call him and check in every week to let him know that I was doing fine and how the, you know how I was progressing um, and then he didn't care for the snow. He's like, why do you want to live somewhere? Else? <laughs> no one warned you about that, huh? Yeah. No at all. And it snowed in like <laughs> early October. And I'm like, oh my God, it was crazy. Um, but I, I fell in love with it. And by, I guess, I don't know, November when I went home for Thanksgiving, I told my family, I was like, it's the right choice. Just because I get to do so many things. I, you know, it wasn't, I didn't feel like a little fish in this big pond. I was able to do a lot of really amazing things that I probably would have been overlooked in a lot of other schools. Mm. Right. That's one of the things we've we've spoken to about with, um, you know, people that went to Oswego, people that uh, faculty at Oswego, that that exact thing. Right. You are when you go to Oswego, it's it's not it's a small pond and you're the big fish. Right. So you get to you have the pick of the litter. You can do whatever you want to do. Right. Obviously, as like broadcasting majors, the three of us, we couldn't we, we all talked about going to Syracuse when we were kids. But mm -hmm. Syracuse was a too expensive, right. kind of like your Yale, and B, we wouldn't have been able to get into the broadcasting, doing what we wanted to do as quickly as we did in Oswego. Yeah, Jason, I definitely stand out. Every job that I've had throughout HBO, throughout even Paramount now, right? It's just I learned how to. I really learned how to own my craft, learn right, own it, be confident about it, and really navigate the industry in a very rich way. Um, and I, you know, I credit Oswego to a large portion of that because I was able to create my own production company right in Oswego. Like, I don't think, I, I probably would have been able to do it in different places, but I just wouldn't have received the same support. So I'm just, I, I'm proud of that. And I still call Oswego my Yale um, because that's the experience I had, you know. When you created the production company, was that like a, a light bulb moment for you in your life? Like, wow, I can, I can really do this. You know, I didn't realize it, Kevin, until like my senior year that that was that moment because it was going so fast. Like all of it, even the opportunity. I was with my roommate and we were talking to the president of the Black Student Union and my roommate knew because we went to high school together. He knew that I was interested in plays and acting and directing. And the president of BSU had mentioned something about programming. And my roommate said, well, Henri is a playwright. You should have him write a play. And then the president said to me, okay, you write a play for us from Black History Month. And I'm like, well, well, wait, I wasn't ready. So then that happened. Before putting the play up, I went to the student activities office or student, um, the club's office. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you need to have a company or group to call that's supporting your your play. And I was like, okay, great. They said, you got to create something right on it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And they said, just, is it a production company? I'm like, yes, I wrote a production. And it's like, what are you going to call it? And I was like, I, I, and I'm thinking about it, my initials just came up and it was AJH. And I was like, AJH Productions, that was it. And it was done. So it just moved all, and it just continued to move and build. 
And then senior year, I guess, I looked back and I was like, oh my God, I did all that. You mentioned your roommate. Did you, um, you guys, you guys both went to school together. You, you knew that you were going to go to Oswego or you just happened to, you know, find out later on that, that he, that he was coming to Oswego. No, actually I found it right before. So we were definitely the type and went to the type of high school that we all bragged about the schools we were going to. Um, even if it was a SUNY school, it was cool. So I, Chris actually, his name is Christopher. He was the only dude, other dude who came to Oswego from my high school. Yes. I was thinking about all the folks who joined and someone had told him that I was going to Oswego. He came because we didn't really like connect in high school um, until we found out we were in the same school. And that was it. He said, well, I, you know, I need a roommate. And I was just like, oh, I guess I didn't do the roommate thing. So I was just like, all right, I guess. And, and a guy, cause I have sisters. So I, I just didn't know how that was going to work out, but it ended up working out pretty cool. Where'd you go to high school? Julie Richmond in New York city. Yep. Julie Richmond high. They closed down after we graduated because they created like a complex from the schools. They're doing a lot of that in New York lately. Mm. Yeah. So what organizations were you a part of? Uh, while you were at Oswego? So the organizations that I was a part of at Oswego, I was a part of the Gospel Choir, mm -hmm. the Black Student Union, um, and I partnered with a lot of organizations across the campus. Um, I think it was Sigma Delta, a lot of sororities and fraternities, Alpha Phi Alpha. Um, and then I also was the co-chair of programming for the Hewitt Union Student Affairs. So... The year after, so we came in 96. Mm -hmm. So 1997, we, do you guys remember opening night? Like when we came to the school, they had this big like event that was almost yes. like a day. Yeah. So in 1997, that opening night, I was a co-chair of that event. So we like threw that whole thing. We had like psychics and bowling and skating all across the Hewitt Union. So yeah, that was a, the work of the team that I worked, that I was partnered with actually. Um, so that's kind of work I did on the campus, really impactful, bigger, big stuff. Mm -hmm. The uh, the question that we ask all of our alum has to do with food. So I hope Wait. you you ate food while you were on the I, I did. Let's see. Okay. Let's see which ones you got cooking. All up right. <laughs> well, we talk about the chicken patty, the, the infamous chicken patty in the dining hall. Did oh you enjoy God. the chicken patty? You know, no one makes a chicken patty like us. And I go absolutely back. not. I go back for the chicken patty more when I'm there and people think that I'm weird because I'm just like, I got to have this before I leave. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you now talking about off campus? Because everyone talks about the sub shop, right? Al Roker talks about it everywhere. And the yes. sub shop is great. It was great. But do you guys remember Oompas? Of yes. course, Oompas Pizza. Right. Yeah. And then they had the chicken wings and they had like the dipping sauce. And it was great. Like people yeah. don't really remember it. So it's like, it hurts my feelings because it was some of the best. <laughs> That the the Sal's Birdland sauce, oh, uh, yes. yeah, I think. Oh come on! I'm like, where is what's happening? I need more of it now. <laughs> so with your chicken patty, how what, what did you put on your chicken patty? What was your go to ingredients on it? Okay, so I'm kind of lame a wee bit, Christo. So the thing is, I just give me like some lettuce, and I was even like this in college: some lettuce and a side of honey mustard. Because I and I'm I'm a knife and fork dude. Well, then I was just ripping. I won't bite into any burger or anything. So I would take the patty and definitely make a you know burger sandwich type of experience, and then kind of rip it and dip it. That was my jam. So yeah, that's me. I like that. I like that. 
<laughs> you mentioned the sub shop. Did you have a go-to sub at the sub shop? You know, I, I didn't. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a few of the sub shop sandwiches because I'm you know, not really a sub dude, but I did it because it was a part of our culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Especially after the good night drinking. Just <laughs> a lot of carbs. It is. Yeah. Bring, them, bring them on. I definitely well, you, held on to the freshman. You got to fatten up with, for all, with all that cold. You got to fatten up so you so you can withstand yes. that cold, you know? That's what it's all about, to stay grounded, too, when the wind is up. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Exactly. You need something to hold you down. <laughs> exactly. The best, best years of my life. It was so good. So good. Absolutely. Henri, thank you so much for joining us. This was an absolute blast. And, um, you know, be- best of luck to you on the podcast. We hope it uh, it launches uh, next year and we'll be right there with you. Uh, so uh, this let us so know when good. it goes live. Yeah, I will definitely let you know. This was so much fun, guys. And that was Henri Houston, uh, class of 2000 at SUNY Oswego, uh, currently vice president of account services and production operations at Paramount Global. Uh uh, advisory board member of the SCMA at Oswego. It does a lot of work with with the Oswego Alumni Association, uh, and that was uh, that was fantastic. That was amazing. Uh, yeah, um, that was uh, unbelievably engaging. Yeah, he was one of the best guests we've had. No slight to anyone, any guests we've had, but he was just so, like Chris said, so engaging. He, you know, had me on the edge of my seat. So he's officially a friend of the podcast. He's a, yeah, he's a friend of the he's a friend of the show. Friend of the show. Henri and I met at the Founders Weekend. You know, before the uh, Com Dinner, uh, there was a panel discussion that a lot of Oswego alumni were there, figuring you know how can we help you know students today get a, get a leg up on starting their careers, and so he's he's done an, an awful lot of work. Um, between you know, just meeting with people and talking to students, talking to business classes, communications classes, uh, the Empowered Scholar Award. So, you know, uh, I think he's doing a lot of great things uh, for for SUNY Oswego. Sounds like it. Yeah, he he kind of reminded me, and I should have mentioned this to interview. He reminded me a little bit of John Amici. John Amici, the former NBA basketball player who was like yeah. super like just an amazing speaker and it reminded me a lot of that uh just the way he was engaging and, and i could i hung on all of his words and it was just phenomenal i mean hbo think about that think about 20 years 20 years yeah how amazing i mean to be what a company for 20 years period is mm-hmm. phenomenal um and to do it at that level consistently um is just another level. I mean, it's I mean, Game of Thrones and, you know, wire. and like, think about all these shows. Yeah, the all those shows, right. Oh my God. I, I, yeah. I mean, I stand by the question I asked. I'm like, how do you do everything that you, that you, that you do? Like, how, how are you a therapist and you have a real job? I don't, I don't understand yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> how is that I mean, possible? We, yeah. Well, we could have like, gone. Well, I don't have any kids. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That, that, makes, that, does, that, that definitely, makes that a definitely easier. Helps. Yeah, for sure. It definitely helps. <laughs> But we could have gone in like any ten directions during that mm-hmm. podcast, and it oh, would have totally. been just as good, right? You know, and yeah, we'll definitely have them on again, no question. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, this is our final podcast of 2023. If you can believe that, wow, yeah, and uh, this Crazy. one, 
This one hits uh, on the 20, what is it? The 27th. So Wednesday, yep. the 27th, which is one day before the one year anniversary of our first podcast. So it's been, it's been a whole year, guys. Wow. Amazing. Happy anniversary. We made about it. They say it wouldn't last. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we better, did it. Yeah, right. We're better than 90% of the podcasts out there. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if we, if we had advice to offer uh, aspiring podcasters, if you're listening and you'd be like, oh, we should do one. Be consistent. Show up on a regular time. Because we had thought, the three of us were like, should we do weekly? And we thought, that's going to be a bit a bit on the rough side. So how about we do bi-weekly? Sold. So we do every other week. That's working out pretty well. And a special podcast every now and again, right? We just spoke yeah. with uh, SUNY Cortland head national champion football coach Kurt Fitzpatrick last week dropped in a mm -hmm. special one we'll do those once in a while maybe we'll have some more next year uh, but overall guys I think it was a great 2023 learned a lot met a lot of great people uh, and uh, looking forward to doing it again all next year yeah for sure I, that's yeah I think that's one of my favorite things about doing the podcast is meeting all these interesting people that you know We've either come across, yeah. you know, during our time at Oswego or we're just meeting for the first time. So that's definitely one of my favorite parts. Yeah. I mean, like Kevin says, you know, he met, he met Henri at the, at the, uh, you know, when we were up for, for the weekend uh, in Oswego at, and, you know, otherwise like we would never, we would never have met him, you know, like we don't really run in the same circles. He does, he has his, he's in, he's, you know, in the, in the marketing space. None of us are really in that, in that space. So the odds of us ever crossing paths were, would be, would be slim, but right. we now have a new friend, see That's a new right. friend. We okay. sure do. All right. I think that'll I hope, do I hope it. He feels the same way. <laughs> I, I hope so. We will link to his website, by the way, on, on our website, throwingbagels.com. So please uh, check that out when you can. And also email us anytime, throwingbagelspodcast at gmail.com. Our socials are all linked on our website too. So keep in touch there. And I uh, hope you had a wonderful holiday and happy new year to all. Yeah, happy new year to you guys. Happy new year, too. everyone. Happy new year, guys.